Our script Our scripture reading today will be from Malachi chapter 3 verses 6 through 12. Malachi 3:6 through 12. This is the word of God. For I the Lord do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and not have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you, and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. All right. Thank you, Hayden. Uh, and thank you, Colton, for that prayer. So uh, this is the last of our series. We've been going through the, the minor prophets, uh, all, all 12. And uh, next week we'll be shifting to Ecclesiastes. We'll be in there for, for a few months. Uh, but we're wrapping up the minor prophets today. Uh, for some folks, it's kind of like the, the, the dark side of the moon. And uh, today, as you saw in the text, we're going to be talking about money. Everybody's favorite topic at church, right? Um, it, can, it can often be a little bit uh, scratchy or uncomfortable and, you know, probably for good reasons. Many of us are kind of month to month trying to make ends meet. Um, setbacks come regularly. There's uh, things that happen with our cars or with kids or medical stuff. Um, and then there's always causes to give to. Like this week, I'm sure all of us have received something in the mail asking us to give to something, whether it's a, it could be a church ministry or um, a, a parachurch ministry or some kind of crisis relief. We're always hearing from areas or, or, or people that we can be involved with. And then there's always that tough thing. Um, I've done this. Maybe you've done this. You get something and you're just thinking it's probably a good cause. I'm not real sure about, I'm not sure how I got this. I'm sure my name got on the list and it just goes in the trash, right? I mean, I do it sometimes. And so my thing is, look, can't give to everybody and everything that comes my way. And so sometimes I'll get something, I'll put it in the trash and I have a little bit of guilty feeling about it. But I also feel like I, I, I can't spread it. We've kind of thought through a budget. I know what we're doing and we end up not doing it. So, uh, and then like, like several of you, I've been on the other side of the fundraising where I'm, you know, uh, I was worth a parachurch for, for uh, several years and I would raise money. Uh, and I was always a bit uncomfortable and I'd wonder if I was putting some people out by asking them to support our ministry. And, uh, and a lot of that is because guilt is often associated with, with money. Um, I, I doubt many of us feel like, man, I've just given so much and I've, I can't imagine giving more than I give. You know, most of us think like, man, well, I have an indulgence here. There's always more I could give and I feel, I feel bad to say no to anybody. And so there's always that, that feeling of guilt that's associated with giving money. And so the, the title of today's sermon is three ways to hold on to your money without feeling guilty. <laughs> That'd be awesome there, right? <laughs> no, no, no. The three points are you're selfish. You should feel bad. Give your money to the church. That, I, I think that sounds good. No, no. But, you know, it, it is funny because like 
money changes during time. When, when I was in college, and especially right after college, and I was I was single, I had a job, you know, I had a small apartment that I shared with roommates, and I felt like I had all the money I needed, and I felt like money had no power over me. You know, all I wanted to do, like my indulgence was like going to Wendy's a couple times a week. There just wasn't, I was kind of low maintenance. I went to a gym that was like a fancy garage. I just didn't have many expenses, but over the last 20 years, my expenses have multiplied by six. Like there's, there's six in my family unit now. And so it, it changes. And I'll be honest, money's more attractive to me now than it was 20 years ago. Like being a pastor and being in ministry and, you know, the sanctification that I trust the Lord has done. In that time, I, I, I could use money more than I could use it 20 years ago. And there's this scripture in the Bible that you, almost like shouldn't be in the Bible. And whenever you have a scripture that you think shouldn't be in the Bible, it's probably in Ecclesiastes, so it's going to get fun next week. It's Ecclesiastes 10:19, and it says this, money answers everything. And all God's people said, no, I'm joking. But it's, it, it can, this is what I love about the Bible. It's honest. Money just solves problems. I, I bet all of us have a handful of issues that we can throw money at it, and that issue will go away. And since money really does solve problems, it's no surprise that we read what we read in 1 Timothy 6.10, where it says, The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with pangs. And why? Because money answers everything. Money is so effective at solving problems and getting things done that it can easily, and without us realizing it, become the place where we locate our hope, and security. It's where we turn to when things go bad. You know, if you think about it, the way that we often look at money is probably good instruction for us of how we should actually look at God. We got a problem, we're going to look at money and throw some money at it. And there's a sense where we should probably operate more looking at God the more the way we look at money, where our hope and trust is located. So anyway, um, one of the ways we can know where our hearts are at with money is how we feel about departing from it, about giving it away, uh, especially when we don't feel like there's an, a, an immediate return. I don't mind departing with some money when there's a return on it. That's actually pretty interesting to me. I want to get involved in it. But, but sometimes when it comes to giving, to tithing, to giving, we feel like it's just giving it away. It doesn't feel like that investment where there's the return. So uh, the two things I want to talk about today are tithing, and giving. So tithing and giving, these are the two places I want to go. So first, we'll start off with tithing. Um, uh, as I begin, I should probably back up and talk about where we're at in the book of Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, and it's the last of the three of the minor prophets. And these last three books in the minor prophets is after um, uh, the, the people of Judah have come out of exile. They've returned from Babylon. God punished them 70 years in Babylon. They've come back to the land God gave them at, at the first and so they're back in the land, and in Haggai we see they're uh, built, re like rebuilding their homes and houses, but they're neglecting the temple. And then in Zechariah, we read about uh, his um, the, the revelations, the prophecy that God revealed to him, and he receives those, and he relays those to the people. And it's all kind of around the, this temple idea again. And then now in Malachi, we're again revisiting this temple where they've neglected the, the, the giving aspect of giving to the, the, the uh, funding the, the work and the, and the work of the, of the temple. And so, so that's where we're at. And then in Malachi, throughout the book, it's, uh, you, you see six arguments being made. And they mostly all follow this pattern we see in Malachi 3, 
where God accuses Judah of something, and they say, well, how have we done that? And so in Malachi 3, God accuses Judah of robbing them. And so like, well, how are we robbing you? And then he says, by not tithing. And then after that, the Lord says this in Malachi 3, verse 10 through 12, he says this, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soul and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So if they bring the full tithe, then the Lord will open up the windows of heaven and pour down a blessing on them until there is no need. This is similar to what we saw two weeks ago in Haggai. And, um, and, and what was happening, they were neglecting the temple, and so God was making things go bad for them. Like the, 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 the produce wasn't happening, the crops were going bad, and things were going poorly for them. They said, if you return to me and, and, and seek and get the uh, temple taken care of, then I'll bless you. We're seeing the same kind of thing here. Uh, if they're neglecting the temple, things will go poorly for them. Uh, but if they prioritize God in the temple, then he will bless them. So that's where we're, that's where we're at. In other words... Uh, what's going on is, is your, your priorities are out of whack. You're not worrying about the right things. Worry instead about God being relegated to the periphery, okay? And per, by periphery, I mean kind of like the side, like that, that door right there is my periphery. And forgive me if I'm being condescending, telling you what a word means. By condescending, I mean talk down to. <laughs> um, so anyway, so that's... That's the problem going on there is that these people have a tendency of putting God in the periphery and that's their biggest problem. And what God is saying is because they're doing that, God is withholding from them. And if they put them back in the center, then he will bless them. And we see this idea often throughout the scriptures. In, in Proverbs eleven twenty four, says, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. So the people of Judah have been commanded by God to give a tithe, and actually says a full tithe, and they have not done so for whatever reason, and it has cost them more not to tithe than it would have cost them to tithe. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give, and only suffers want. Again, it costs them more not to tithe, then it would have cost them to tithe. So let me talk about tithing for a minute here. There's, there's some debate among Christians, even those who hold to our church's theology, and I'm sure even within this church here, uh, whether or not Christians, New Testament believers, are commanded to tithe to the church. In, in other words, does the Old Testament tithe mean that Christians should give 10% to their church? Now, it might surprise you to hear from a pastor that I'm not persuaded that Christians are commanded to tithe to their local church. Uh, I'll share three reasons why. And look, there's freedom to have difference of opinion here. Uh, but here's three reasons why I'm not persuaded that Christians must tithe to their church. Uh, one, tithing was a part of the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant, and we're no longer under the Old Covenant. So then we shouldn't necessarily assume that it automatically carries over into the New Testament. 
And then two, tithing under the Old Testament actually required much more than 10%, because there were actually three types of tithe. Remember, we saw in the text that you should give the they should give the full tithe. And there was a tithe to the Levites, a tithe, a tithe for the festivals, and a tithe to the poor. So then if we're going to be consistent with moving the Old Testament tithe into the New Testament, then it would be much more than just 10%. And then three, nowhere does the New Testament teach that Christians are to tithe to their church. Now, some might choose to give 10% to the church based on the Old Testament tithe, and that's great. You can certainly connect dots there. I wouldn't argue with that. Um, but that is different from it being a New Testament command. So now that I've completely undermined next year's budget, let me move to consider the New Testament idea of giving. All right. So the New Testament might be silent about tithing, but it certainly isn't silent about money or giving. And I want to do a quick survey about what the New Testament is explicit about in regards to our giving. So here are six explicit New Testament instructions about giving, and these are in no particular order. First, we need to look out for each other as a church family, the household of God. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have an opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And on that same note, in 2 Corinthians 8.13-15, we read, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. One reason the church experience must not be limited to a Sunday morning event is because we are to be more like a family that's looking out for each other, that we would know who's okay and who's not okay and who needs help. Several years ago, I heard a story. Uh, it was a, a girl I knew. Uh, she was in a different state, and uh, she had a young family at the time and, um, and was diagnosed with cancer. And it was a pretty intense form, and she was going to have to go through some immediate treatment that was going to be a really rough go for her. And within 48 hours, the, the church had bought a deep freezer, put it in her garage, and loaded it up with food and kept it loaded with food until she was th- past the whole ordeal. And you know what? Of course, it's the family. I would imagine we, we would do the same. It's so sweet, but that should be completely normative for the church. And look, I, I know we're an imperfect church. We don't, we don't you know, meet every need that we probably could or should. But so many times I've seen our church eager to help those in our church family who are in need. And, and nobody usually has to be told. People just start doing it. It starts happening. God's put that desire there. We cannot let a person in our family struggle without being helped. It's like this, that the church is this expansion of the immediate family where we're looking out for each other. We're certainly looking out for our immediate family. Don't even have to say that. But the church family is a family. Now, second, uh, in uh, Galatians 2.10, we read that Paul was eager to give to the poor. And, and here he's carrying out the, the true sayings we see in Proverbs, uh, repeated so, so much about taking care of the poor. Like Proverbs 14.31 says, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. And Proverbs 19.17 says this, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. So like the Apostle Paul, we should be eager to give to the poor. But in a similar way to Christians bearing their own load, we should be discerning 
about giving to the poor. I don't think you automatically have to give to everyone who ever asks you or feel guilty for not giving. We should be discerning about how we help those who are in need because sometimes those with good intentions can hurt more than help. And actually, knowing we're going to be covering this, and I don't have near the time to go through it, uh, one book that's kind of helped to shape our idea of benevolence uh, is on the bookshelf, the bookstore out there called When Helping Hurts, How to Alleviate Poverty Without Hurting the Poor and Yourself. Because sometimes it can be easier to, to help the poor by, by just kind of giving something away real, real quick without maybe getting your hands dirty and truly helping them, not just putting a Band-Aid on the problem, but really trying to bring healing to that. So it's a complicated issue, but it's a complicated issue the church should certainly be giving itself to, and Christians should be giving themselves to. Uh, third, uh, we see in First Timothy, we should give to orphans and widows. Uh, many in this church have a heart for children whose parents can't take care of them, uh, and, and they've given much of themselves to that and been great about getting us involved and how we can be a part of that. And that's so great because the scriptures are so clear that we should be taking care of the orphan. And while, while widows today are in a different situation than the first century, uh, they shouldn't be any less of a priority for us as a church to make sure that they are well taken care of. Fourth, the fourth category, and this almost goes without saying and might not necessarily be in the giving category, uh, but a man is responsible to take care of his family and relatives. First Timothy 5, 8 says, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So when it comes to someone in a situation when they are in financial need, the first line of defense is the family. And so when someone's in need, that's when the family gets in. When your relatives are in need, that should be you're the first line of defense. And the second line of defense should be the church. Fifth, we should give to those who are ministers of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9.14 says, In the same way, the Lord commanded those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So evangelists, evangelistic ministries, church planners, these should be financially supported by believers. So in 1 Corinthians 9, we read this in 3 John. It says, Beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So we should support evangelists, missionaries, things like that. And then six, the scriptures teach that local churches should financially support their pastors who labor in teaching and preaching. First Timothy 5, 17 to 18, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. And I'm very grateful for your generosity here. You all very kind and gracious to me and my family. So, so these are the, the six things, the six areas that, that the church, the, the Christians, should focus on in their giving. Now, some might choose to apply the Old Testament tithe and give 10% to the church because the church is going to be invested in those, those six things as well as other things. Uh, some might even choose to give 20% to the local church or 10% to the church and another 10% uh, thinking through where to give it away. But I'm not persuaded it is required in the same explicit manner, the tithe, as the Old Testament tithe was required. 
But don't forget or neglect other opportunities to give. Keep your eyes open. Sometimes you might give 10% to the church and be like, that's it. That's all I do. That, that would not be a good thing. You should keep your eyes open in your church family. Uh, for others who might be struggling, you should be aware of who might be poor or in need. Uh, be involved in funding the proclamation of the gospel. Be involved in supporting missionaries. So we should be looking for those opportunities. Now, one problem with giving and generosity is, like I said earlier, life can be expensive, especially when you get kids involved. I think it's kids are just more people, right? Um, and, and we might feel like there's just not much margin to give. And I'd imagine in, in Haggai and in Malachi, that's probably how they felt too. They're just like, it's not that we don't care about God. It's just like we got things to do. Expenses are here, are real. There's a real life problems here. And while I would say we need to be responsible in regards to how we give, and we don't need to, to give more than we're able in the name of trusting the Lord. We also need to see that Scripture consistently does teach that we might not be able to afford to not give generously. We already saw that in Malachi 3. We saw it in Haggai. We saw it in Malachi 3. We see it in Proverbs 11. But we also see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 through 11. And it says this, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 6 through 11. It says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. In summary, by unloading some of our riches into these six categories, we will be enriched with more than what we unload. And if you struggle, excuse me, if you struggle with being unhappy, if you struggle with that, giving could be the cure. Part of the way that we can induce joy in our own life is to be more giving, is to be more generous. Jesus said it was better to give than to receive. And we just read that God loves a cheerful giver, but I think giving actually induces cheerfulness. And if you don't find a sense of happiness or cheer in your giving, then I would say you're doing it wrong. Something's gotten mixed up. Maybe you have an, an old covenant view of, of giving and it's just this lead weight that you got to drag around with you. If you're doing it reluctantly or under compulsion, you're doing it wrong. So, in this message about money, which can be a, a scratchy subject, I hope you see it instead as an opportunity to be enriched with more. And, and not just enriched with material things, though I think that too, but also enriched with cheerfulness and joy. And, and I hope everyone keeps giving to the church as you have been. I hope I didn't just hijack our budget for next year. I don't think I did. But perhaps by not seeing it as an obligatory percentage Maybe that can help to restore some of the cheer and the joy in it.
And maybe you can consider, consider where else you might invest your finances. Maybe 10% goes to the church and another 10% goes just as you keep your eyes open looking for needs. How cool would it be to, for us to have family conversations of we have X amount of dollars. Who shall we bless? That will induce joy and cheerfulness. And, and may we never forget that this isn't just something we're supposed to do. It's part of our nature as being children of God. Because God isn't just asking us to do what he's done, though, though he is. He's asking us to be like him. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, we read this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Now that's what our God is like. And we're being made like him more and more. And we experience that when we give generously. And, and I don't know, and you think of wealth or being rich or the good life, I don't know what image that comes up in your mind. I have some fun ideas, you know. I'm sure you have some fun ideas too. But whatever our image is of being rich and wealthy and living the good life, y'all understand it does not capture the kind of richness that Jesus Christ has won for us who though he was rich became for us, making Yahweh our Father and all things ours. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for giving your son that we might come to you as our father. We cannot come to you as our father without Jesus becoming poor for us, making us rich with Yahweh as our father. And more than that, you've given us all things. And you did this for the joy that was set before you. And so would you restore to us the joy of giving? And would you uh, have that to cause many thanksgivings cried out to you? And Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.